Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 409. I think that that's so important. I think that I never found myself telling myself to nod that I couldn't get there. You know, like that was just never part of of what I told myself. Like my story was never, oh, well, you can't get there. Or, you know, like, how are you going to get to California? That's crazy. It was always like, we're going to figure out, you know, like you're, let's at least put the effort into it and, and see what comes out of it. But I think that not trying and not giving your dreams a shot is, is very, very sad. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. There is no time to waste in the restaurant business, especially when an opportunity comes up and you need extra capital. Cabbage created a simple, flexible way to get a line of credit of up to $150,000, apply online, and get a decision right away. Withdraw funds when you need them without reapplying. Cabbage has helped over 100,000 small businesses. Get started at cabbage.com slash unstoppable, and you'll get a $100 gift card when you qualify. That's cabbage with a K. Line of credit is subject to credit approval. See terms and conditions. Who loves doing paperwork? No one. Sorcery is an efficient online AP automated solution for the food service industry and restaurants, large and small, are using Sorcery to provide a scalable solution to help them create efficiencies and ultimately grow their business while impacting their bottom line. To learn more, head to GetSorcery.com. That's G-E-T-S-O-U-R-C-E-R-Y.com. And be sure to mention Restaurant Unstoppable to get your first month free. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Sandra Arnard. Sandra, are you feeling unstoppable today? Every day. Awesome. And we (laughs) just recently had your husband on the show. Uh, I get so excited to get uh, different, like the the same story, but from different perspectives and to really dive into just the the story behind what you, the two of you have accomplished. And uh, if you want to check out Nick's episode, that's 403. uh, Just last week it was published. So uh, Sandra Honored sharpened her teeth in some of the industry's most well-known restaurants, including Thomas Keller's The French Laundry and Corey Lee's, I'm going to say this wrong, I know I am, Benu. Did I do it it right? You did it right. (laughs) It was at the French Laundry where Sandra met her future husband, Nick Onrich. And uh, in 2013, the discussion of opening their own restaurant began to reverberate. And shortly after, Renata was born. Today, Sandra and her husband are the owners and operators of two restaurants with the addition of Figlia. Uh, So obviously, we're just scraping the surface. I can't wait to dive into your story and to find out what makes you you. Uh, But let's get that motivational inspirational a ball rolling with a success quote and mantra or mantra what do you got for us oh that was a really hard one to decide on but i think the one that i keep going back to is that possibilities are always greater than challenges possibilities are always greater than challenges dive into that and how that really resonates with you well um i feel that in this business and i'm sure that in many 
businesses or people that own their own businesses, there's always a lot of challenges, uh, especially when you have a big staff. Um, there's always something else going on. And to remind yourself that uh, even though situations can seem problematic, uh, there's always a lot of possibilities and that every situation always comes with with a learning experience and that, you know, it's always a possibility as opposed to a problem. Yeah. Listening to you talk, I, I can't help but just think of the power of just being open-minded and optimistic and just showing up and giving your best and not necessarily knowing what the result's going to be, but knowing that if you show up and bring it, you're going to have a better shot of making it. That's for sure. Uh, awesome. That's I right. Awesome. So wh- where did it all start for you? Cause you have a degree or you, you originally went to school f- to study behavioral science. Is that what you mentioned earlier? Yes, yes, yes. So, um, as many people that start in this industry, I started just waiting tables, uh, to make my tuition and my books, uh, to go to school, to do something else. Uh, and so I started working in restaurants when I was 19. Um, and they always was, it was always just the thing that I did to make my, my other dream happen. And as I kept going into them and my mom was always a really great cook, uh, I, I always had this, this love for, for cooking and for, uh, for restaurants. And, uh, eventually one day I was sitting at a restaurant in Houston, Texas, and it was a Colombian restaurant. Uh, and the owner was there and she was really, really sweet. And at that point, I, I just decided that I wanted to one day own a restaurant. And so I started redirecting my, my life and my, and my education towards that. And I started taking uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to court, I'm gonna have to stop you there because I feel like that's a big pivotal moment that we need to dive into. What was it about this woman and that experience that really made you fall in love with the industry uh, so much so that you you know pivoted like you do to like you did to focus on a new career? I think it was it was one the idea of feeding people and bringing that comfort. Um, that food can bring to people. And, uh, you know, like I was living in Houston and I'm from Colombia originally. So uh, being away from home was really, really hard. And uh, I always found that kind of comfort in going back home when I went to, to eat Colombian food. And so when I was in that restaurant, I, I realized that, that, that special thing that restaurants can do for people, which is so, so personal. And I also wanted to be my own boss and to have my own thing. Uh, I had, I always had this very entrepreneur, entrepreneurial uh, spirit. And I was, you know, when I was in high school, I was selling, making cheesecakes and selling cheesecakes and selling sandwiches and selling all kinds of good things. Um, Awesome. And so it was kind of always in my grain. <laughs> okay, so you fall in love with the idea that you can just provide comfort and care and give people that that space. Uh, and you were always kind of the entrepreneur. And when did you? I mean, how did you start living intentionally? I mean, it sounds like you you 
made the decision to go to school for culinary? Was that your own decision? Did somebody say you should do that? Like, why did you take that path? No, I, I took that path because I wanted, I wanted to, I wanted to learn more about food and cooking. And, um, it just felt like that. I didn't realize, I don't know if I didn't realize what I was getting into. I just thought that that would be the best way to start. Okay. Um, so what was that experience? Like, what do you think that was the best path? I think so. I mean, like, I don't know. I couldn't, I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, I, I went to culinary school and it, it opened up my mind to a lot of things. Um, you know, I was, I was living in Houston at a time where Houston had steakhouses and Tex-Mex restaurants everywhere. And the kind of culinary revolution had not hit Houston yet. And so it was a very, uh, narrow-minded um, food scene. Uh, and so when I went to culinary school and I opened up my, my horizons to so many other cuisines and so many ingredients and so many other things that I was never exposed to, it just really blew my mind. And and I started getting very, very curious and started getting into into cookbooks and, and learning more. And I, I just wanted to learn more and more every day. Um, and one day I was at school and one of, uh, one of my teachers came into class with a library card full of cookbooks. And he said, here, we're going to, we're going to look for some inspiration. Let's look at some cookbooks. These are some of my favorites. And I, out of all the cookbooks that were there randomly, I grabbed the French laundry cookbook. Okay. And when I, grabbed that book I sat on that on the book and I just read the whole thing in hours I couldn't put it down it was just amazing and it was then that I said well that's that's where I want to go do my internship wow talk about manifest destiny right that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> one thing yeah. I love and one thing I've definitely picked up from listening to so many incredible people like yourself is just the power of surrounding yourself with other incredible people. And I feel like a lot of us uh, limit ourselves and say, I don't, there's no way I can go out to California, San Francisco or right. these food cities to surround myself with the influence of these incredible people. I don't have the budget for that. Well, do you have the budget to you know, get their book and at least surround yourself with their thoughts and their viewpoints and their values. I mean, it's so powerful, just the power of reading other people's thoughts and other people's work uh, and just being curious and learning in that early phase. Do you want to reflect on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that, that, that finding inspiration, finding drive, um, at this day and age is really just as simple as listening to a podcast. Um, and I think that, you know, like I, I never found myself, I think that that's so important. I think that I never found myself telling myself to not that I couldn't get there, you know, like that was just never part of, of what I told myself. Like my story was never, oh, well, you can't get there. Oh, you know, like, how are you going to get to California? That's crazy. It was always like, we're going to figure out, you know, like you're, let's, at least put the effort into it and, and see what comes out of it. But I think that not trying and not giving your dreams a shot is, is 
very, very sad. That's some powerful stuff you just shared with us. Just so, it's so simple, and it's hard to do to like have the the uh, discipline to stick by your vision, to stick by what you, your goals, and just having that goal in the first place. Uh, but what's really powerful, what you share with us, is just that no is not an option, right? Like you can do it is and as long as you ask yourself how you can do it, literally just asking yourself how opens up your mind and you get so creative as to like how to actually make it happen. The, the possibilities are endless. Uh, but as soon as you mm-hmm. say no, like your mind shuts off. What do you think of that? Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, like for me being in Canada, um, going to culinary school and, presenting my school with the possibility of going to the French laundry. I mean, like not on, not, not any restaurant, but the French laundry, uh, to go do an internship. Uh, they just looked at me like, uh, okay, well, we've never done an internship outside of Canada, but I'm sure we can figure it out. And, you know, like I had that, group of people that believed enough in me and that were willing to help me through that journey, uh, to get to, to get to, to get to California and to get to Youngville and, you know, going to Youngville without a week before I, I left, I didn't have a place to stay in Youngville. Like I just, I just didn't know how that was all going to play out. I just knew that somehow it was going to play out and I was going to, I, I was going to go there because that's where I knew I had to go. Awesome. So, I mean, how'd you get over that hump knowing that you didn't have a place to go? Like what, what was that inner dialogue like before? Like what made you just take the leap and just go, even though you didn't necessarily have a place to stay once you got there? Well, I kept making phone calls every day and trying <laughs> to get a hold of like, if the craziest thing is that the way that I got a place to stay was through a realtor uh, that I called and I said, you know, I can't find any rooms for rent. I can't, I need to be in Youngville because I don't have a car. So I can't stay in Napa. And is there anything like, do you know of anybody? And he at first was like, well, this is not what I do. I sell houses, <laughs> you know? And, uh, but a few days later, he got back to me and he said, you know what? There's this lady in town uh, that he's been looking to rent a room. Uh, she's a friend of mine and she might be willing to do that. This is her information. And so it just kind of all came out, but you have to, you know, like it's not enough to, to say, Oh, it's, it's going to happen. Somehow it's going to work out. You also have to put your effort into it and try to figure out, uh, solutions. Yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine how many people put in that same situation you were put in were just throwing their hands up and said, well, looks like it's not going to happen. Oh, well, cancel the plans. But when you put yourself out there and you just, you know, reach out to people and talk to people and just let it be known of what you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. Like you never know where the opportunity is going to come from. But it's like you said, it's up to you. You got to hustle. You got to take that initiative. You got to make it happen. That's right. Awesome. So you make it out to the French laundry. Uh, I mean, I don't know. You must've done well. Cause I'm assuming that you left and went back to school and then came back to the French laundry. So take us through that experience. Yeah. So I got to the French laundry and I was an intern in the kitchen and Oh my gosh, that was the hardest <laughs> thing I've ever done. <laughs> that was so challenging. What was so hard? About and, it? um, 
the little tasks that you have to do over and over and over again, and there could be as tedious and as difficult as peeling and dicing chestnuts in a mini dice, you know, uh, that has to be all perfect or, or doing the little, uh, eggs for the egg custards. Like you can go through three flats of eggs to get half a flat. Right. Uh, so it was like, it was very challenging. And I kept telling myself through all of that is like, okay, this is teaching me patience. This is teaching me patience. (laughs) I can get through this. Um, and so, yeah, we went, I went through the whole experience at the French Laundry and it was amazing. Um, I met Nick there and it was really not until I was done with my internship that I realized a lot of what the French Laundry gave me, you know. Um, then after that, I, I went back to Canada and came back to California and worked at a restaurant called Red. Uh, in Yonville too, in the kitchen. And while I was working in the kitchen there, um, I, I kind of realized that that's not, that my hands couldn't handle it. I have, I have arthritis in my, in my fingers and carrying those big pots and pans was very, very difficult. And my hands were just in so much pain. And so eventually I went back to French laundry, but this time uh, in the dining room. And I started working there at the, almost at the same time that Nick became maitre d'. Uh, I became the dining room expediter. So this is like and circa 2007, or did you start your internship in 2007? Oh, geez. Okay, let's see. I like to put timestamps because uh, it helps me. Like, <laughs> 2006 was my internship. Okay. And then I came back to the French Honor in 2007. Got you. Okay, cool. Um, and, oh man, you mentioned something earlier and I kind of let you keep going. So I thought maybe you would come back around to it, but you said it wasn't, uh, it wasn't until the end of your internship that you realized the impact that the French laundry had on you. Uh, what was that impact? And I mean, I'm assuming it was that impact well, that made you come back too. Well, you see, you go to, uh, an internship at the French laundry and you're in the back in the kitchen, just doing really hard jobs all day long, right. For 12 hours. And you do that day in and day out. And oftentimes you dice the chestnuts, but you don't know where the chestnuts go after that, you know, or you do all the eggshells, but you don't really taste what happens to the eggshells after you're done with them. And so, after I was done with my internship, Nick and I went to have dinner at the French Laundry. And when I sat down for dinner and I started getting all these amazing food and I started seeing the diced chestnuts on the, on the, on the plate and the little tiny chervil leaves and all these things that I had been doing for so long, it all made sense, you know, and that attention to detail that, mm that seemed almost annoying in the back made so much sense. And it was so profound because it really taught me uh, attention to detail and how important that is and how that can make a difference uh, 
in people's experiences, you know, and, um, and then that, that, that human aspect of where it starts and where it ends and how many hands are touched, uh, touch your, your dish by the time it gets to you. Um, it's, it's something that is really magical. That experience of dining at the French laundry was very, very magical. So you worked there for three additional years after the internship uh, up to this point. That's what you learned that attention to detail. Uh, I want to mm-hmm. keep the majority of our conversation on what you got going on today and how you made this all happen. But I want to try to extract maybe one or two more nuggets out of this experience at the French laundry at three years. What, like, what was it? If you could like give us like one or two more big lessons you took away uh, from that experience working under such a great person like Thomas Keller. Discipline, for sure. Discipline and sense of urgency would be my other two big lessons. Uh, I, you know, as, as I went to work at Red, uh, which was, it was a really nice restaurant, but it was not the same, you know, it was definitely not the French laundry. So when I, uh, it gives you a different perspective. And then Nick was still working at the French laundry and so many times and all my friends were at the French laundry. And so many times I just couldn't quite understand like the intensity of, of their jobs, you know, and how, Nick would just make a big deal out of simple things. And I'll be like, what, what's the big deal? Like, Nick, you need to just relax a little bit. What's, you know, like, what's the problem? (laughs) And then when you get there, uh, understanding that culture and signing up for that culture and being part of it, I think is Thomas Keller's biggest. I mean, I, I, that's one of the things that I admire Thomas Keller for the most is, being able to create that culture where everybody believes in it, you know, and everybody believes that the napkin should be for a certain way or that when you dump uh, an empty bottle in the garbage can, you shouldn't make any noise or, you know, all these things that seem to be so rigid are, they just make that place what it is. And I think that, that, culture is like um, really amazing how does he do it how does he create that incredible culture i I know when i was talking to nick uh, and i was also talking to alex pratt too he mentioned the power of making everybody start at the bottom so they understand uh i guess just the culture like like they make no matter who you are where you come from very few people skip steps and now i'm assuming this you know the culture you know the restaurant far better than i do is that a safe statement yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. I think not only do you start from the bottom, but it, it also, everybody, um, because everybody believes in the same thing. Everybody pushes you to do the right thing constantly, constantly. It's like nonstop until you become one of them and then you become <laughs> one of them and somebody else comes in and you start pushing them to become one of you. Uh, but I think that that the way that that he does it is by example. Yeah, I think he's, I, it's I, almost, sorry. Go ahead. He go walks ahead. into the kitchen and he has Windex and a towel, and he <laughs> starts wiping things away. And you're like, chef, like just clean that today, you know. <laughs> but he will just do it because he that it is important to him, you know, and yeah. and 
seeing how important that clean restaurant is to him is what made us climb up ladders to wipe the the ceiling and to, in in all, every single window corner and you know all these things that are important to him became important to all of us beautiful and to me i mean just that that is such a statement uh of the importance of culture uh and you look at somebody who has such profound success like thomas keller like he's he's made other people famous you know like like when oh, yeah. he, you know like and like the think that the value he puts on culture uh just it, it just it just it's a i don't know it's a I'm at a loss of words right now, which doesn't happen often, but it just, it just puts that, it's just so much emphasis on the, the importance of culture. And no matter who you are, what skills you have, you start at the bottom, you learn the culture first. You have to, you have to drink the Kool-Aid. Uh, <laughs> and right. it sounds like yeah, he totally. mastered that. Um, okay. So let's move on. Uh, let's talk about uh, your next tenure, which was at, uh, I'm going to say it wrong. Bemu. Why can I say, I want to say (laughs) Bemu. Thank you very much. Words. I struggle with them sometimes. So how did you find yourself in that position? Um, So eventually Nick and I had our first kid in Napa and we were ready for a change. We wanted to go back to a city and kind of have a more urban life. And we decided to move to San Francisco uh, kind of at the same time where when Corey left the French Laundry and was opening Bennu in San Francisco. Um, and I had a, a family trip planned and I couldn't be there for the opening, but I joined the team maybe two months, two months, two months in. And um, I... I just really wanted to work under that culture again and to work with Corey, uh, who I admire and who I think is just one of the greatest chefs and um, being part of his new, his new chapter was, was really special to me. Um, so I joined the French Laundry. Oh, I know you're going to ask me a year and I don't, I can't put a year on it. <laughs> it was uh, 2011 you joined Benu. I have your your LinkedIn profile <laughs> open right. right now on my computer. Oh, great! <laughs> <laughs> so, what were the um, big lessons? I mean, I know that uh, Corey came from the same culture that you came from, so you guys had that the values, uh, similar values. But mm-hmm. what what was it about that experience of being a part of a new restaurant, really helping put Bennu on the map? Like, what were your big takeaways working here? Um. At Bennu, I met Yunha, and he he really inspired me to to see things differently. Um, I feel like uh, Yun has a really cool balance between humor and being a hundred percent friendly and fine dining and very, very knowledgeable person. Um, and I had a lot of fun working with him. I think that's my biggest, my biggest, uh, takeaway from, from my experience at Bennu was, was, uh, getting to work alongside with you and Ha. Okay. That's, which is huge. Why is, why is having fun so important? Um, because if you're not having fun with what you're doing, then why would you do it? <laughs> exactly. I mean, a paycheck is just not a good enough reason. 
Mm. Um, what about? So, yeah. I, I was, I was going to say, what about the uh, just the significance of helping? I mean, I feel like at the French Laundry, it's it's very established, right? Uh, their systems, their processes, their procedures. And I'm assuming Corey probably picked up a lot of what he learned and implemented at Bennu. Uh, but what was that whole process of really kind of take, finding Strad? Um, and I know you came in two months after they opened. Had they already caught Strad at that point? What was that process like? Well... I think Corey is a very, very um, strategic and planning person. Like he just, he knows exactly how he wants things and when he wants them. And so I don't know that he, I mean, like I would be curious to see what it was like two months before I got there. But uh, yeah, I feel like he, he's a person that, that knows exactly how, how he wanted things. And, and you know, I, um, I think that you always can always bring stuff to table and and do things better. Um, but it was a very small restaurant with a very small team. It was only like five captains and two sums, and that was it. Like the uh, runners two or three runners. Um, and that was it. We never, we didn't have two crews. Like the French owner had a bigger team. And so I think that because of the size of the restaurant and the size of the staff, uh, the kinks were worked out pretty quickly. Mm. Okay. Um, so at what point did, and I'm going to try to treat this interview. Like I know none of the story behind this. Uh, I want, I want to get your side of it. Uh, so at what, at what point did the vision for opening your own place with Nick really start to, uh, take form? Um, so Nick was working at Delfina, uh, at the same time that I was working at Bennu. And, um, we had flirted with the idea of opening up our own place ever since we met, really. Um, That's what I wanted to do, and that's what Nick wanted to do. But at that point, uh, Nick Nick had lost a lot of time with the kids uh, because he was working a ton. And we were in a city where life is very expensive and at times very difficult because we didn't have any family around us. Um, so I think that the kids, the, the, the family situation was what steered us towards the, the restaurant or the moving, you know, and saying, okay, let we gotta, we gotta move into a place where we can, uh, do what we want to do. Like opening up a restaurant in San Francisco would be, so so challenging uh, with so many amazing restaurants and uh, we we want to be closer to home and so we decided that we should move to Portland and try to open up a restaurant here in Portland and we started kind of talking about that idea and Nick had been talking to uh, to people to people at work and to some friends about about it and eventually. Uh, when Nick met Josh, uh, Josh and Scott from the Bombi Vans, he he said, "I want you to meet these guys because I think these guys could be uh, a good team to bring into into a restaurant, and let's talk to them and see what we can do." 
So is it safe and to say started- that the first step for you guys was to establish the team first? We did. We kind of didn't know exactly what we were doing until we started traveling to Portland and paying more attention in a different way, you know, because when you're coming just to visit and, and you're just here for a few days, uh, it's different than when you're coming in to visit, but you are thinking about this plan of opening up a restaurant. And then you start going to restaurants and start paying more attention to, to the market in general. And so uh, when Nick left uh, Delfina, he he was home for a few months, and that's when he started really working towards that. Well, I, I went I went back to work full time, and he became a stay, stay home dad, and uh, and started working towards towards the idea of a restaurant. Okay, so what was take us through that process uh, from this this time where we're at now, where you have committed to the idea of opening your own place to actually opening the restaurant? Like, what were your biggest challenges in that reflect? Like, reflecting back at that. Well, so eventually we packed up our lives and our children and moved to Portland um, without jobs and without a you know, a real solid plan, uh, just with this dream, uh, that, that this is what we wanted to do. And we were going to figure out how we were going to get there. Uh, Nick was offered a big job in San Francisco and we said, no, no, this is, this is not what we want. If we keep going from job to job, then we're never going to go for our dreams. Let's just jump in, uh, and, and see what happens. And, we got to Portland and we realized that it was going to be much more challenging than we ever anticipated, uh, you know, from, from finding jobs, uh, to provide for, for our kids was very, very hard. Our resumes were too, too big. And, uh, you know, like getting a server position in, in any little restaurant was, was not as easy as we thought, because we thought, well, we have great resumes. Like we, we should get a job pretty easily and pretty quickly. Uh, but that was not the case. And we struggled for a few months, I feel like, until we were able to get some job. And then we just, you know, like Nick, Nick flirted with the idea of, of, of going to work for, for a big restaurant, for one of the big restaurants in town. And, and eventually we turned it down just because it would, delay our dream and uh we worked every odd job we did every everything that it took like i sold cheese at the farmer's market i did catering gigs i nick nick and i waited tables um in restaurants because this is what we wanted to do and that was the only way that we were going to be able to have the time to devote to to finding a place but then after we were able to get jobs and we started to put uh, LOIs in for spaces. Uh, we started realizing that that not being known in town was not a good thing for us. And and people, uh, landlords kept turning us down, and they kept saying, "Well, you know, like this other restaurateur came in and put in an LOI, and they're a well-established restaurateur in town. So sorry, but you know, we have to go for the guy that is that is established." And we lost 
so many places. We negotiated so many places. And finally, we lost the last one. And Nick and I just looked at each other with tears in our eyes. Just We just said, this is, this is not going to happen. What the hell, you know? And we, we were just like, maybe we should just move to New York City and get big jobs and just forget about all this. Um, and then a couple day la- days later, Nick walked into the building where Renata is right now. And he called me all excited. He said, oh, my God, I think I found a place. I think I found a place. And so we started negotiating one last time. <laughs> and when, as we were going through the negotiations, the, the guys that were uh, developing the building ran out of money. And they called Nick and they said, well, we're, we're out of money. Uh, this is delayed. Uh, do you guys want to buy the building? And Nick and I looked at each other and we said, well, we're just trying to open up a restaurant. We don't have any resources to buy a building. And uh, at that same time, Nick's dad was looking for a space to open up the, uh, a dairy that he was invested investor in. And uh, he said, well, this, this could be a good opportunity because we can put the dairy and the restaurant under the same building and we can develop it and we can then bring another tenant for the other space. Uh, and so he brought a group of investors together and they purchased the building and we were able to develop the whole building, which was really, really cool. Well, so from the time you started looking and getting first getting denied these opportunities, these spaces to the time you actually put a deal together, how much time elapsed? I think it took a year. Wow. A year of just showing up mm-hmm. consistently. What If there is one lesson you can extract from that experience, what would it be? Um, I think determination, patience, and I think that the only thing that got us through all of that was telling ourselves that things will come together when they're meant to come together mm. and that everything would be there when we were ready to receive it. Mm. Uh, wow. You know, even though sometimes it was very, very challenging to stick to that. Yeah. So you, you had this vision of creating something that was from scratch, right? You guys knew from the beginning you wanted to be a scratch kitchen where everything was done in house. You had so many moving parts. Uh, I mean, I, I, don't want to get into like the different things I discovered or just learning like the different things you wanted to be, the different, uh, I guess appendages you wanted to have, uh, all underneath this roof. How, how did you tackle this huge project? What, how did you know you were going to pull that off back then knowing how many moving parts this, this thing was going to have? Well, we didn't know we were going to pull it off. (laughs) I think that, that we just, we put a team together and, we we had a vision that was shared, you know, we had a common vision and and we just went for it. Um, but it was it was extremely challenging. I think that to this day having a scratch kitchen is is very, very hard. Uh it requires a lot of a lot of labor, a lot of hands, a lot of a lot of projects that can take days and months and you know, pursuit to let can take 24 months 
to to be ready so uh it's it's uh it's a labor of love and patience for sure why is a common vision so important well because people believe in what they build and you have to you have to bring people in to help you build it uh so they can so they stick with it. Otherwise, it's, it's too hard. You know, it's too, it's too challenging. And so having that, that understanding of what, what you, what you feel is the right way or the, or the best way, uh, in, in being able to create that culture around that is, is fascinating, is exciting, is challenging. Um, yeah. It seemed like early on you were trying, you were putting a lot of emphasis and this is not from our discussion, but from me doing research on the idea of, of collaboration, of bringing a bunch of people in uh, to not make it just, you know, so it wasn't just yours, but it was everyone's. I mean, what is this, mm-hmm. the significance in developing that, that foundation of people, that collaboration around you? Well, I think that, I love how you pause and really think about what you're going to say. That's, that's a really good thing. Uh, that's an awesome habit. (laughs) Keep going. I want to be thoughtful. (laughs) (laughs) I think that for, for people to believe in, in what they're doing, they have to be a part of it. And, and having people's voices and having their ideas be valued uh, through the process of, of opening up a restaurant is is very very important. Um, I think that trying to do it all alone would be awfully challenging and and just not as fun. You know, mm-hmm. I think that bringing people in makes it more fun and more real. So, how many people did you have working on this project um, in the early stages? Like when you opened, uh, obviously it was you and Nick. You had a psalm with you at the time. Uh, but you were also had, did you have, were you outsourcing, uh, specialty, um, I guess artis- artisans or did you have people that you're going to, to contribute or was it all in house under one roof, under one paycheck? How was that working? No, it was all in house. I mean, the, the only things that we bring in is things that we can't produce like olive oil, vinegars and, and cheeses and stuff like that. But, uh, but yeah, we were, or we are making everything in house. Hmm. So I'm going to let you freestyle from this time on until we go to the, the, the speed round. What are the, the big things from your experience uh, from opening Renata to expanding to Figlia, uh, the big learning moments, the big aha moments, the things that knowing what you know now, you'd go back and change if you could or do something different? Um, I think that... Oh, the big aha moments. Mm. I think that for me, one of the biggest aha moments was right after we opened, we uh, we were awarded with Restaurant of the Year uh, six weeks in. That was <laughs> That was, oh my gosh, that was so challenging. And uh, after that, we had a bunch of bad reviews. And People were really, really hating on us because they kept saying that, you know, we bought the Restaurant of the Year award or that 
Portland is not uh, a town that is used to big restaurants, and Renata ended up being bigger than we ever dreamed of, and and it required more resources than we than we thought it would, and so it kind of opened up as a big fancy restaurant with Nick and I coming from the French Laundry, and you know, in Portland, like their little more restaurants that are, you know, that are not as big and pretentious uh, as people might think Renata is. And so overcoming that perception and overcoming the perception that, yeah, we did come from the French Laundry, but oh my gosh, why is that being held against us? You know, like mm. we, we want to be an inclusive restaurant. We want to be open to everybody we you can come in here and leave for 25 bucks because you can get a pizza and a glass of wine and just be be good you know um and so changing that perception and after all the other reviews came came through uh that was really hard you know it felt it felt that they were more personal than than they were objectively criticizing the restaurant and um, one day, uh, Nick, Matt, our chef, and I sat down at a table and we were just scratching our heads saying, what the heck, you know, like, what, what is wrong? What are we doing so wrong that, that we're getting all this, all this negative press? Like, we are not bad people. We're just trying to bring a cool restaurant to town. And I looked at them and I said, hey, guys, we have to take this inside we have to stop looking outside for for feedback like this has to be all in in this restaurant in this room one guest at a time one bowl of pasta at a time one service at a time and we need to just put our energy into this because this is where we're going to make a difference wait say really explain that so you said you have to stop looking outside what do you mean by looking outside how are you looking outside well because we were so fixated on Yelp in all reviews and the Portland monthly that came out and the other review that came out and the other guy that just wrote and eater and, you know, and like you start really getting caught up in what people are saying and writing about you. And what sometimes you don't realize is that, yeah, you know, a writer can come in and they can write and, from their experience, which is one person, one experience. And what we were experiencing in the restaurant was a lot of happy guests, you know, like, yeah, we had our challenges. Yeah. We had our crappy services. We were young. We were a three month old restaurant. We yeah. should have our challenges or in our bad yeah, services. And, and That's then to, to get nailed the <laughs> best restaurant in the city, uh, I mean, yeah. it, I can't even wrap my mind. That's like drinking from a fire hose, what you guys went through, uh, trying to figure out your identity, trying to catch pace, get your systems, processes, procedures straight. Then all of a sudden, hey, turn on the floodgates. Uh, here they come. Like, oh, my God. Like, I can't even we were wrap running, my mind around that. We were running out of food every single oh, night. And yeah. so every day we had to start from nothing. Oh, man. And like, so prepping for another 200 and another 200. And it was, it was, it was insane. Oh my goodness. It was crazy. Oh my goodness. But then you said we yeah, have to look so, inside. We have to, we have to take it and stop looking about what people are saying about us after the matter. But what can we do today in house, each experience, each guest? 
yeah, so Nick, you know, like Nick, Nick and I just started to, to just spend all our time on the floor and touching people and touching guests. And then, and then I realized that this restaurant business is all about human connection. Mm. Um, and if that human connection isn't there and if that human connection is not what we are looking for every single night, uh, then, then yeah, we probably could be serving great food, but it's not great food is not enough to make people come back over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. You know, like what makes people come back is because, Oh, they know the server or they know the sommelier or, or they know the owner or the chef loves them or, you know, and yeah, we serve great food and they have a good wine list and all that's there. But, but it's that human connection of taking care of people. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I think the only the only thing that at that point we had control over was was our space and our service and our and the people that were coming in to support us um, and just letting go letting go of of what we wanted people to perceive us as and what we wanted people to write about and just focusing on what we had control over, which was was our service. So before we go to the speed round, I want to talk a little bit about what your experience opening opening Figlio was like. So how do you? What was the biggest challenge going from one, uh, you know, beast of an operation with all the moving parts you have, scratch kitchen, uh, nose to tail, everything? Uh, that alone is a huge project. How did you, in a couple of years, go to opening your second location? Well, Celia just kind of happened organically. Celia. Um the the vice president for rejuvenation used to come into the restaurant because we're only a block and a half away. And so he would come into the restaurant for a drink after work or for uh, business dinners all the time. And we created a relationship with him. Uh, and Wait, so who is this person? At that time, uh, his name is Alex Bellows. Okay. And he, go ahead. He was a guest. He he just started coming in as a guest. Is that what I heard? Yeah, he was okay. the vice president for rejuvenation, and he was coming in as a guest all the time. Okay. And at that same time, Nick and I went to London, and we stayed in uh, close to close to a, a little spot called called uh, Otolengi, and Otolengi is this not a coffee shop it's not it's like i don't know i i don't know how to fully describe it but you go in and they have tables full of pastries and all the cakes i mean it's it's of course london so they love their cakes and their and their cookies and their sweets and and then they have the most amazing display of salads and everything is just so so good and healthy and you take it to go and when I saw that, I was like, oh my gosh, I would love to have something like that in in Portland. And I started talking to Alex about Otolengi because he knew Otolengi and he loved Otolengi too. And and we started saying, oh, well, how cool would it be that the, the, the lease is coming up for, for the, for the uh, business that is in there right now. And I would love to bring something in that will 
that will um, complement what rejuvenation is a little more. Um, that is that is a little bit more upscale. That that we can have the the spec feel better, and we started working together towards that. And Celia came to be um, out of that that idea of of having having a spot in the neighborhood that where we are located, there's not a lot of lunch spots. Um, it's, it's a working neighborhood that has very, very few options and um, definitely not a lot of healthy options. So I wanted to bring something that, that people will feel good about eating every day or, you know, three times a week. Um, so that's how Philia came to be. And Philia opened up. It's going to be a year uh, next month. And it has been it has been interesting. It's been really interesting because what we are doing is so different from anything that we've ever done before. You know, mm-hmm. like we've never done kind of this deli cafe uh, service before. So going through that and trying to figure out how our standards fit with, with that kind of service and that kind of, of restaurant has been, has been really interesting. I want to pull back one more layer before we go to the speed round. Cause I'm really curious, but are you good on time? Do you have like, do you have a hard stop that I should know about before I ask this question? No, I'm good. Okay. Just wanted to make sure. <laughs> so you mentioned earlier, you decided, uh, you learned that you had to go, inside you have to look inside you realize that it's all about the relationships and being on the floor and touching as many tables as possible and and the people knowing that they they, that you care for them and that there's relationships there right Uh, weren't you concerned about losing some of that impact some of that that uh i guess that uh what danny myers calls i want to say he calls mojo uh that that soul uh when you take yourself out of one restaurant to go open another restaurant did that scare you at all yeah, of course. Of so course how do you combat did. that? Um, well, we were so close together. And because Nick and I are on the floor, we were flip-flopping. And so if I was there, if I would be at Celia. And that became hard with Celia, too, because it was Nick and I and uh, and somebody else working Celia. Um all the time together, right? And so when people, when people um, at Philia got used to us, got used to seeing us all the time. And then when we hired, because we were cashiers, you mm. know, and we just wanted to see what it was going to be like and what it was going to take and what people were looking at for and talking to, to people every day to, to adjust the business, uh, to cater to them. Uh, and when we took a step back from that to just kind of go back to Renata and try to balance both um, both properties, uh, I would walk into, I still walk into the rejuvenation building and people are like, oh, we haven't seen you so long. We miss you. Where have you been? It's like, I'm at Renata. Just come <laughs> a block and a half away. I'm there. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's hard, but we're very lucky. We have we have an amazing team. Uh one of our managers, Andrew, he's, he's amazing. And I think that, that having, again, the people that believe in what you're doing and that, 
that care about the same things and that have the same values uh, for the restaurant is it, it makes all the difference. Awesome. Sandra, you're crushing it. I'm loving this. We're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back. To be unstoppable, most restaurant owners require extra capital from time to time. When you need funding to renovate, buy equipment, or manage cash flow, you don't have time to track down financial statements or wait weeks for a decision. That's where Cabbage can help. Cabbage gives small businesses access to a line of credit of up to $150,000. Apply online and you'll get a decision right away. Since Cabbage is a line of credit, you can take the exact amount you need. You never have to reapply to take out additional loans and you only pay for the funds you use. Cabbage has helped more than 100,000 businesses from every industry with over $3 billion in funding. Cabbage is A-plus rated by the Better Business Bureau and was named a Forbes Top 100 company twice in a row. Check out Cabbage with a K dot com slash unstoppable and you'll get a $100 gift card when you qualify. That's K-A-B-B-A-G-E dot com slash unstoppable line of credit is subject to credit approval. See terms and conditions. Nobody likes doing paperwork. If you have a growing group of restaurants and find yourself wishing you could snap your fingers and have all of your invoices and AP instantly disappear from your plate, then you need to call Sorcery. Sorcery is used to make owning and operating a restaurant a breeze. Instead of dreading invoices, you'll be delighted to be synced with every vendor. With their new relationships, you can work on negotiating the best price to improve your margins and Sorcery's biggest super Superpower is that they watch the prices you pay across the kitchen from dry goods to proteins to produce. And when citrus skyrockets, you'll know to update your recipes before you end up kicking yourself at the end of the quarter. To learn more, head over to www.getsorcery.com or find the banner in the show notes. If you mention Restaurant Unstoppable at checkout, you'll get your first month free. Yep. And we're back. The first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Determination. What is your biggest weakness? Uh, I think that personally, I would say my ego and professionally would be the financial side of the restaurant business. Okay. So personally, the ego, how did your ego affect you? What do you mean by that? What part of your ego? Just, um, you know, trying to be open to not being right all the time and Mm. to try to listen to others even when I feel that my way is the right way, uh, that's 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 something that I'm I'm working against. You know, like working to get better at. Yeah, I, I think it was Danny Meyer who wrote this article not too long ago that said it, something along the lines of, "It doesn't matter who's right. Who's right mm-hmm. doesn't matter in the hospitality industry. What matters is coming to a resolve, no. uh, coming to a place where people are happy." Uh, is the most important thing. Yeah. Um, beautiful stuff. And you said that your professional challenge or weakness is the accounting stuff. So what have you done to, I guess, uh, 
to not substitute, but to, I mean, you acknowledge the challenge, but what are you doing to compensate for that? Well, Nick is the financial side of, of the business. Like, so he manages all the finances, um, but I, I've learned a lot. He's, he's been probably one of my greatest mentors. I, I am really grateful that Nick has believed in me so hard because, uh, he's taught me things that I was never really open to learning. Um, but he's, he believed in me before I believed in myself. And, and I think the finances is, is one of those things over the, the first, um, quarter of this year I had to, I had to take over, uh, over the accounting or the bookkeeping, not the, you know, not the overall P and L things, but just the bookkeeping and, Gosh, that was so challenging. And I just looked at me like, are you kidding? I can't. <laughs> Why? Why me? Uh, yeah. uh, I hate math. And, uh, and, and he, he really has taught me a lot, but I feel like I still have a lot, a lot to learn. Yeah. You're never going to stop learning in this industry. I think that's one thing that's so great about it. But at the same time, when you're getting started, know your lane, know what you're good at, know what you're not good at and find somebody, a partner, uh, a life partner or a business partner who's strong where you're weak or where you're weak. Yeah, uh, it's exactly. so powerful. <laughs> Supplement. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what is one question or thing you look for during the interview process when you're trying to build that amazing team? Um, I always try to look for what excites people um, and how, I guess the one thing that I always ask is, what is hospitality to you and why what is your favorite restaurant and why is there a right answer Um, well i i no there's not a right answer um i just want to know how personal people get and how how much they're willing to share on that because there's there's a lot of layers that Mm. can be peeled out of this what is your biggest challenge today Uh, our biggest challenge as a business or in life, like, what are you dealing with? What's challenging you today? How how are you dealing with that challenge? I think my biggest challenge today, uh, is, um, is learning how to deal with situations differently depending on who the person involved in the situation is. So I do all the HR for the restaurant. And I think that that's that's been been really challenging. I just uh, trying to trying to relate to people in their their problems and their challenges and and what they're going through um, while, you know, running the restaurant. And we've been we've been really focused on on creating uh sustainability for for the restaurants and for uh, uh for our kitchen staff mostly and uh balancing that that intention of sustainable living with uh with what we're trying to do with a scratch kitchen and with everything else has been uh has been challenging so are you leveraging any tools? Have you done anything differently to improve that challenge or to make strides in the right direction to surpass this challenge? 
Well, for the sustainability, um, we we have we 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 try to have our chefs and our in our managers not work more than ten hours a day. You know, like we we want we want our kitchen managers to be there for fifty hours a week, but not. I mean, like uh, when we opened, a lot of people were pulling sixty five. 70 hours a week wow. and that's crazy and you know and like growing up in restaurants and and being in a restaurant like the French Laundry where cooks will work 14 15 hours a day every day no matter what uh, and no matter who you were really it didn't matter if you were the chef or you were the cook or you were the comi it didn't matter um, that trying to break away from that mm. and trying to create a different uh, culture around work. That's, um, that's tough. Man. To us. <laughs> that's it's a big tough. challenge. It's really tough. Oh man. Yeah, it is. Good luck. And if you make any progress or you learn anything or discover anything, I need to know, let me know so I can learn from you and share your knowledge. <laughs> um, so what is one code of conduct behavior core value? If you will, you teach your team that's not standard. Um, I guess the one thing that I always talk to my team about is that human connection. Mm. That's more than, than the technique, more than pouring the wine from the right side, more than marking the right way is the human connection. What's one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? This is something that uh, is like, a you know, there's a little things we pick up in the industry that not everybody realizes that uh, you teach your team uh, when either in the front of house or the back of house. Mm, that's a hard one. Can you elaborate a little bit? Yeah, it is a tough question and I'm still trying to figure out the best way to ask it. So if you think of a better way, you can sure let me know. Uh, The example I give is like when you approach a table and you're holding a dirty plate or something that doesn't belong to that table, right? Um, Say they they wave you over and you you don't just approach them, but you have to go to that table for whatever reason. You hold that plate, that thing that's in your hand that has nothing to do with that table behind your back is an example of something that like an unstandard uh, level of service or, you know, the obvious ones are like, you know, having an anchor in the room and going around and like in, uh, counterclockwise when you're taking orders. So, you know, where to put the food, like little things like that. Um, something that's maybe not common knowledge, but something that you teach your team to really take that level of service to the, to the next place. I always teach my team to be efficient when they go to a table. Um, and, again, this balance of, of finding that human connection, which requires people to stop and take time, uh, in a restaurant that is very busy and doesn't allow you a lot of time to stop. Uh, it's, uh, it's hard, but I always teach them to, I always say to them that they, when, once they hit the table, once they are at the table to do everything that they can possibly do to make to, to, you know, like to make the table right at the moment. Like, so instead of clearing those plates, make sure you fill those waters first and mm-hmm. then you fold the napkin and then you clear the plates and then you walk away. 
uh, because if you clear the plates first, then you don't have hands to pull your water. Yeah. And a lot um, of that stuff isn't is, common knowledge too, which I think is important to point out. No, like you it's gotta, not. You got to point. You got to teach. Like it that, sounds those, so simple. Yeah, you got to teach those standard operating procedures. Um, awesome stuff. All right, uh, share one online resource, uh, a place you go uh, to either learn more about the industry or a tool you're leveraging online. Um, one, uh, tool that I go back to a lot is a podcast that is called I'll drink to that. Ooh, awesome. First time recommended on the show. What's I'll drink to that all about. So about wine. Okay. So it's like, a yeah, they just drink different wines and discuss different wines or no, um, they interview, uh, often, often it's winemakers. Um, and so they go. We're an Italian restaurant, and so we my my list is mostly Italian. And this podcast is, even though they do from all over, they concentrate a lot in Italy. Okay. And um, they interview just winemakers and owners of wineries and uh, from different areas, and that's that's been oh, that's uh, cool. a tool that I've used a lot for education that's awesome there's so many educational resources out there ways to expand your knowledge and just uh you know get, to get the story behind things and i think the, the, that's so powerful mm-hmm. it can be so powerful uh what's one book that's a must read to make us either a better person or a restaurant owner mm. i have to go, go very very uh classic on this one i think setting the table by danny meyer that is the most recommended book on the show by far and what yeah. is the biggest lesson for you that you extracted from that book uh, you know, there's so many of them, but I think one thing that really resonated with me was uh, when he was talking about his first restaurant and how, was it his first? I, I think so. That he had a restaurant that was struggling and yeah, it was Gramercy Tarn. And he said, you know, it, when people were telling us to to cut stuff and to not be as generous and to not give, to not send gifts to people when they came in. Uh, I always said, no, we, the, even, even when we're struggling, that's when we have to be the most generous because that's what we put out there is what is going to come back to us. And I think that that's something that I carried with me mm. throughout this journey. Awesome. I love it. And what's one technology, uh, like a tangible technology, like a tool, uh, a hard tool, whether that's a kitchen appliance or a front of house uh, POS or whatever uh, that you're leveraging in your restaurant that's making you more efficient, more profitable, more uh, improving communication? I'm just trying to throw some ideas. <laughs> what are you using? Oh, um, Blue Card. I think Blue Card is our, it's our new a new platform that we're using for, uh, for ordering and trying to make, um, the kitchen area a little bit more, more organized. It's amazing, but you never realize how, how behind in technology restaurants can be and how we rely on paper so much. And so I think that that's, that's something that has made our life a little easier lately. What exactly is blue car? What does it do? How's it serving you? So blue card is, um, it's an ordering, well, it's a platform where you can place your orders, you can uh, uh, track your inventory, 
you create order sheets. So every vendor has an order sheet of the products that you order from, and you can, uh, you can put up what, what should be on hand and what you have, like at the end of the night, the cooks can go to their station and say, Oh, I have, you know, a pound of almonds and I'm supposed to have two pounds. So it automatically, automatically fills in your order guide and it places the order. So it's kind of like shopping on Amazon, but for restaurants. Um, (laughs) and that's, that's been really cool. How many hours a week would you say you've saved using that? Or not hours, uh, minutes. Sorry. (laughs) I think our cooks, well, no, I mean, in a restaurant our size, it could be hours. Oh, wow. I think our cooks probably are saving at least five hours. Five hours. Ordering through the week. Wow. You got to think, you got to, people are so slow and apprehensive to adopt new technologies to be more efficient because they can't justify the cost. But then you look at five hours a week, you're saving. Uh, I don't know what you're paying your, your, your people, I'm sure it's okay. It sounds like you, you take care of your people. But let's just say, what would that be, like $70 a week just on the time you're spending for one person to, to make their life easier? How much does a blue cart cost a week? Isn't it free to the, the restaurateur? No, no, no. We pay we pay uh, yearly. I'm s- or it's monthly. It comes up to like 130 bucks a month or something. So you're making um, your money back is the point that I'm making. And it makes everyone's yeah, life cool easier. Thing, <laughs> the cool thing about Blue Card is that your bar, like the whole restaurant ordering can be done through that. So like all your paper supplies, all your bar needs, your wine, everything is under one roof, which also allows you to see how people are spending money and how much money you're spending. And you can set up budgets. So the kitchen knows that this week they can only spend seven thousand dollars and if they go up they go over you can see that the tools are out there it's up to you to leverage them and you know be as efficient as you can uh and especially the way the industry is going you're going to have to find ways to be more efficient to compete really that's what it comes down to with the yeah it's yeah we're not talking anymore we're we're beating this to death i think we can move on the next question i have for you is uh it's a doozy it's a it's a big one but an important one and uh if you got the news that you'd be leaving this world tomorrow and all the memories of you your hard work your restaurant your reputation would be lost with your departure except for three pieces of wisdom knowledge you know to be true that you can leave behind for the good of of humanity uh, what would those three lessons be or not mm. lessons or things you know to be true. Be kind, take care of your health and find human connection. Beautiful. Sandra, this has been a, a lot of fun uh, learning about you, your story, what you know to be true about your success in the industry. Uh, we wrap up every episode by calling somebody out. So who's one independent restaurant operator, somebody you admire in this industry and think would be a great guest mentor like you've been for us today. Well, I'm going to have to call out Corey Lee from Bennu. Corey Lee, it's not the first time you've been called out. I'll be uh, sending an email again. Uh, if you ask enough times, eventually, they might have to break down and just 
say yes, right? <laughs> uh, but Hopefully, I think that he will bring a lot of good insights. Oh man, I bet he would be incredible. Uh, we'll, we'll make it happen sooner or later someday, but Corey, look out, I'm coming after you again. And let the folks at home know, uh, how can we connect with you if you want to maybe join your team or just follow what you're up to to you know maybe learn a thing or two? What's the best way to connect and see what you're up to? Well, I'm on Instagram at srnerich. Um, and through email, my email is sandraadrenatapdx.com. Always looking for great people to come in and join our team. This is episode 408. Head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 408. And you'll find a link to all the tools, resources, uh, books that are recommended, and a summary of today's discussion all right there. Thank you again for just being somebody to make an example of, Sandra. Uh, you are a shining example of, I think, just determination, right? And to, to keep showing up and to stay optimistic and to ask yourself, how can I make this happen? Uh, and for that, I am grateful. Uh, there is no questioning. You are unstoppable. <laughs> Thank you, Eric. I appreciate your time. <laughs> Thank you. Cheers. Boom. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Sandra, man, uh, the big thing for me that I, I took away from you and your story is just the idea of determinism and optimism and just keep showing up and will things to work, will things upon yourself. Uh, you saw it very early on when she was trying to get that internship with Thomas Keller. Uh, she didn't even have a place well, she didn't even have the internship. She she willed upon herself the actual opportunity by expressing her interest in doing this. And then she willed it upon herself after getting the opportunity to just put it out there and get a place to live. Like she didn't even have a place to live a week before getting there. And she didn't quit. She didn't say this isn't going to be possible. She said, we'll make it work. And if you have a, a mission or a, a goal and you keep that goal at the, the forefront of your mind, you, you can will upon yourself the means to make it happen, but it's up to you. you you've got to put it out there. You've got to put it into the ether. Uh, and it's so clear that she's done that. She did it when she wanted to create the internship, when she actually had to get out there and find a place to live. She did it when she uh, found out her arthritis was too bad and she couldn't work in kitchens. It was too much. She, she found a way to stay within the industry. And then she had the determinism and the will and the patience to, to wait out that year of getting rejected for locations to open a restaurant uh they're at their wits end uh but they held on long enough that determinism and opportunity came to them um it takes time it takes dedication it takes will and she definitely has that willpower to keep showing up so thank you for being that incredible example and like always guys please do reach out to me if you know somebody who is a leader in your community who's the mentor in your community who everyone in your community looks up to as a restaurant tour who goes to to learn from this person they're the example of what greatness looks like put them on my radar make an introduction or tell me what you're struggling with i'll get an expert on the show to go over that thing with you uh, keep those five star reviews on itunes and stitcher radio and i am accepting donations this is a free podcast let's keep it free every little bit helps lastly please share this podcast if you want to support the show the best way you can support the show is by getting it out there and sharing it with other people who can benefit from this free resource uh, okay that i think that's it for today i appreciate you guys sticking around this long i hope you found value in today's episode until next time peace out